Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's get to it right now. Charles Cantor of Newburger Berman, long short fund senior portfolio manager and author of the Cantor Sweet Green Index. What's going on, Charles? Uh, the Sweet Green Index, I think, references my my study of, of how folks are coming back to work. And, and yesterday online, it was it was almost a two hour wait at, at 12 o'clock, which which for us, like you in New York, it feels good to get some vibrancy back in, in, into Midtown and, and folks are coming slowly back to work. and. Kids are going back to school, so hopefully it's returned to normal slowly. I look where we are, Charles Cantor, right now. In the sequence of interviews I've done with thinkers who keep going back to the dreaded T-word technology, you, uh, you and your team are expert at this. The overlay of technology seen, Microsoft, Amazon, Whole Foods, the rest of it, but unseen as well. Tell us about the unseen technology now that makes you a bull owning stocks. Look, I think I think the technology goes to 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 quality of business and and sometimes references forward thinking. I, I think your Amazon example earlier, where you reference the hiring, is, is fascinating to us um, because it speaks to those that have scale um, and those that are forward thinking. I think a lot of businesses out there are, are struggling tremendously with 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 labor. They they blaming to some degree the stimulus. Um, which references the fact that people are getting paid a lot not to work. Um, as that gets peeled back, I think folks are going to remind themselves that it's really about competitive positioning and the lack of forward thinking and a lack of building a culture and a pay system that really attracts and, and, and rewards the best talent and, and the lack of investing in technology. And, and all of that technology investing is, is happening in some of the best businesses that have come out of COVID as winners and will remain winners because they're forward thinking. And the so, COVID experience for many businesses, I think, have re revealed weaknesses in, in, in investment decisions, whether it be in supply chain, in culture, in, in labor management. That, and those seeds were, were planted not last week, but, but many years ago. So, Charles, um, I think well, how, dovetail this, please, into a market call. How do you take this thesis that basically people are getting exposed by the COVID, even if they're hiding behind it, and decide what to buy and what to short? Because for us, you know, I think we all like to keep it simple and, and, and focus on the macro, focus on, for, you know, focus on is it growth versus value. But as stock pickers and as people that love understanding nuance and fundamentals, we just don't think you can paint this environment um, with with one with one brush and and value simply means it trades at a discount to the market and growth means that that revenues are strong the reality is in this environment you're going to be paying a, t a lot of attention to the middle of the of the income statement because i think businesses will continue to suffer um, gross margin degradation and and potentially operating margin degradation through forces driven by supply chain costs um, labor management and, and lack of competitive positioning. And so we will continue to stay with, with the beyond privileged, resilient, and, and, and kind of leading businesses. Many of them uh, sit in technology, but they sit in other industries as well. So I think my word of caution is 
is, is, is to pay attention to the details. Yes, revenue growth has been fantastic because of kind of a generational shift in, 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 in driven by demand coming out of COVID. But as the dust settles into, into next year, I think it's going to be a focus back on, wait a minute, which businesses actually are built to last? Who has the pricing power? Who can hire the best labor? And who has, has much more diversified supply chains? That can that can manage the the global interconnected environment, and so it's it's for us. It's going to be about the companies. It hasn't really been because of the flood of money um, and and government stimulus and the like. But at the end of the day, it's it's quality of business that wins out. And 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 well, let's get an example of this if we can, Charles. And forgive me for jumping in. Give me an example of this right now. Who's getting it done? One of your favourite longs. Well, I think our favorite long center, center in, 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 in the technology space, we, we're big believers in Amazon because of their scale. We're big believers in Adobe because of their scale. I mean, we, we love the businesses that, that are facilitating today's environment. And, and you find them in, in business, businesses that would include Microsoft and Workday and, and businesses that are, are maybe not as obvious to, 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 and are not discussed each and every day. So, so for us, the longs don't really change much. They continue to compound, they continue to take market share, and yeah. they continue to deliver for shareholders. I mean, Microsoft is an example. Yes, the $40 billion doesn't really matter, but it's, but it's, it's a signal that they have more capital that they know what to do with. And like many companies, balance sheets are fantastic. Um, and and they're buying back their stock. I, look for us, it's I would stay. I'd be very cautious on on consumer facing businesses that are going to face tremendous labor and supply chain issues into Christmas, um, as well as industrial cyclicals that are not going to have the pricing power necessary to manage supply chain complexities. Hey, Charles, really important conversation. We appreciate your time to kick things off this morning. Thank you, sir. As always, Charles Cantor there of Newburger Burma. Bhakti Hansadi with us right now. Unfortunately, we have to move from the lightness of John's jet tender to the reality of the great unraveling. It is from Auckland, New Zealand to Singapore in the last 24 hours. And now we come out to the reality of, say, Nashville, Tennessee, or wherever you want to pick on. Uh, Bhakti, the, the direction is not good. We're up to 1,800 deaths. We were at 1,600, two cups of coffee ago. What direction do you observe on this pandemic nationally? and globally? So nationally, the news is, I think, a little bit more positive. What we're seeing is a plateauing of that peak that we have been experiencing for the last week. The deaths are still going up, but previously we have seen that there is a lag in the deaths being reduced as the pandemic itself plateaus. Globally, there is hot pockets. There's countries that have managed to maintain epidemic control, have this low indulating rate of cases. Other countries are seeing surges and trying to adapt accordingly. Um, there's still a number of countries globally where vaccine rates are south of 20%, and that is problematic. You are in emergency medicine with your international acclaim in epidemiology. What do the people you know in emergency medicine observe now is different from a year ago, different from 16 months ago. 
So unfortunately, a lack of difference from 16 months ago. So there's a difference in patients, but right now, nationally, we have a shortage of resources. Um, I was working, the, I'm going to be working the overnight tomorrow night. I was at working the overnight last week. Um, my hospitals are full. Um, many hospitals are on diversion, which is where the hospital says, we have no capacity. Please find somewhere else to receive care. Um, there's long wait times to the ICU. And the challenge that we're going to face is as the COVID-19 cases continue to be uh, a recent high, we are now about to face uh, a flu, pan flu surge as well. And so, you know, physicians everywhere, we are concerned that we do not have the resources to adequately care for all the patients who are critically ill who need them. Dr. Hansadi, how prepared are we for another pandemic? Well, as prepared as we could be, right? We've been doing the same thing the last 18 months, right? So we have optimized um, at a health facility level, as a health system level, as much as possible, right? We have surge preparedness plans. We have stockpiles of PPE. We have the number of ventilators we have, the number of ICU beds we have. We have a critical shortage of healthcare workers and especially nurses. So we are running at maximum capacity. I don't know how you go beyond maximum capacity. Well, I ask this because I've heard uh, President Biden talk about getting a plan together to combat more effectively the next pandemic. And there was a study that was reported uh, today from Duke and a number of other medical uh, researchers talking about other COVID uh, infections that they are tracking around the world. I mean, how much of a concern is this in the near term versus just something that's going to happen once every 100 years? Well, I wish it was once every 100 years. I fear it'll be more frequent. Now, there are several variants of interest that have emerged. Um, there are some variants that have higher transmissibility than COVID. But we don't know how that plays out, given that a significant proportion of the American population is A, vaccinated, or B, has had COVID. And we also don't know if these newer variants are likely to cause severe illness or milder symptoms, which is what I'm really praying for. Doctor, got to leave it there. Dr. Bhakti Hansati there. Johns Hopkins, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine. This is a joy. He is a former Prime Minister of Latvia, but far more, he is a physicist, and I mean real physicist, with electrical engineering from the University of Maryland. Valdis Dombrovsky is European Commission Executive Vice President and Commissioner for Trade. And what you need to know is a year ago, eight months ago, 10 months ago, he was in the timeout chair over vaccination, and he and others in Europe have had the great success story of the turnaround of Europe in vaccination. Prime Minister, thank you so much for joining us today. How did you in Brussels in Europe turn around vaccination in Europe to 70 percent? Uh, good morning. Uh, indeed, uh, as regards vaccination campaign, by now more than 70% of adult population in Europe are vaccinated. And uh, what was uh, uh, in, in, important in this is that European Union was acting on this as a whole. So on behalf of the 27 member states, we were securing uh, vaccines. And that's what helps to secure this uh, availability. Because it's uh, uh, clear that the biggest and, uh, 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 so to say, richest EU countries 
companies could secure vaccines on their <clears> own, <throat> but not the smallest and right. economically less developed countries. So we ensure that vaccines are available across Europe and manage to uh, uh, have a very effective vaccination campaign. Right. Prime Minister, how did you sell unvaccinated people? The New York Times today, sir, has a brilliant article on the failure of America to convince the unvaccinated to get vaccinated. What was the Dombrowski method? Well, uh, first of all, it must be said, if you look at the vaccination rates uh, in the EU, they are also uneven. There are a number of countries uh, which are actually lagging uh, behind. So there is still lots of work also in the EU to uh, convince the population to uh, vaccinate. And we are still... Uh, in, in this work, of course, uh, vaccination campaigns are run by individual uh, member states, but we are helping uh, all, all we can by providing all uh, necessary uh, evidence, all necessary information, helping also to counter disinformation, uh, fake news, which we see in this uh, context. So it's still an ongoing work. Commissioner, you've made tremendous progress. Many people have acknowledged that over the last several months. It's a real turnaround. Why do you think then, even with this fantastic progress with vaccinations across the continent, that Europe has struggled to get the United States to reciprocate on things like travel? Why has that been so difficult? Uh, well, uh, that's, I would say, a bit of a general tendency we see during the pandemic that we have lots of disruption uh, uh, for travel. Actually, we had it uh, within the EU, but also there we managed by now to set up what we call uh, uh, EU uh, digital COVID certificate, where people which have uh, proof of vaccination or negative test or which have uh, proof that they actually had had COVID uh, can uh, travel without additional restrictions within the EU. Uh, many countries in EU's neighbourhood are using this uh, system, uh, but of course, as regards uh, other countries, they take their own uh, decisions, and we are still in continued uh, dialogue also with uh, US because we think that the epidemiological situation would permit actually to uh, lift uh, travel restrictions also from the US side. You've called it continued dialogue. Characterise how that dialogue is going for us right now. Are you making progress? Are you further along now than you were a month ago, or are we going nowhere? Uh, well, uh, uh, it's uh, at the end of the day decision for US uh, to take uh, which uh, third uh, country uh, <coughs> residents they are admitting in the uh, country. The point we are making is that if you look at the uh, epidemiological data, also at the reliability of the uh, COVID certificates which uh, EU is providing to its uh, citizens, uh, this is a good basis actually to lift those restrictions. How different is it dealing with President Biden than President Trump on issues like this, as well as issues on trade? Well, as regards uh, trade, it must be said that we are now on a much more positive track with the Biden administration. Already uh, several months ago, we resolved long-standing Airbus-Boeing uh, dispute. Uh, we are now uh, working on resolving another trade irritant from Trump era, which is uh, steel and aluminium tariffs. Uh, and later this month, we will be launching a Trade and Technology Council, where we will be cooperating in these areas of trade, of new and emerging technologies. And we think it's important that EU and US being strategic allies, being like-minded <coughs> partners, actually work together on those issues. So what's the main point of agreement between the European Union and the United States when it comes to China and the trade negotiations there? 
Uh, well, uh, as regards uh, China, we uh, share a number of uh, concerns as regards uh, China's uh, socioeconomic model, like role of uh, state-owned enterprises and their competitive neutrality, industrial subsidies and transparency of this, uh, forced technology transfers, intellectual property rights. So uh, also there, uh, we agreed already in the EU-US summit that we'll be cooperating uh, closely uh, and seek uh, common approaches, both both bilateral, but also, in, in, for example, in a context of the reform of the World Trade Organization. Let's hope we can make some progress. Commissioner, always fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Thank you for your time this morning. Vaudis Dombrovskis there. I'll get my words out. Vaudis Dombrovskis <coughs> there, the European Commissioner, Tom Keen, Executive it. Vice President and Commissioner of Trade. In an important and different interview here, not nitpicking each moment about monetary policy and the politics of Europe, and that would be with David Rubenstein. Peer-to-peer -peer conversations. David joins us right now. What was it like, David, speaking to this different Lagarde? I've known her for quite a while. When she was the head of the IMF, she was the first woman to be the head of the IMF, and she had quite an important impact on the IMF. And people were I'd say disappointed at the IMF that she chose to leave because after two terms, she could have had a third term. But I think Angela Merkel really thought that uh, a more important job for her was to come back to Europe and run the European Central Bank, where she's the first woman to do that. And she's had a gigantic impact on the European Central Bank in just the two years that she's been there. A lot of criticisms, a lot of compare and contrast to the previous leader, Mr. Draghi, now occupied in Italy. Did you speak to her? of the interior politics of Frankfurt, her greeting, and where she is right now? Well, I think she feels she's got a pretty good grip on the European Central Bank. Uh, she's articulated policies which the bank is, is pursuing. So they have a very uh, clear policy now of getting to 2% inflation. That's their real target, not close to 2%, but 2% which is not easy to do, but that's what she wants to do. She's also made it clear that the economic package they put together to deal with COVID has worked and maybe better than they thought, because as you heard earlier, uh, she now thinks that they'll recover uh, to the GP GDP levels they had before COVID in Europe by the end of this year, which is really more than the United States is doing. Perhaps uh, one of the bigger challenges that she has that the Federal Reserve does not is that she's got a bit of a harder job herding cats than the Federal Reserve, which tends to remain a bit more cohesive. Did she talk at all about trying to keep a consistent message at such a tenuous moment? Yes. For those who aren't familiar with the European Central Bank, it's not like the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve um, is in charge of monetary policy, but we have one part of the uh, one country that does physical policy. So we have uh, a physical policy for the United States and a monetary policy. In Europe, you have one monetary policy that the ECB does, but each of the countries have their own physical policy. So it's, it is like herding cats. I uh, you know, said to her uh, somewhat facetiously, well, her background as a national synchronized swimmer, was that helpful in, in, in <laughs> enabling her to figure out how to get people to work together? Because she was a great synchronized swimmer. And she now has an interesting situation where she has 23 central bankers of each of the countries, and she has to preside over that. Interestingly, she said, in many of these meetings, there are 22 men and one woman. And she said, there's still amount of uh, discrimination in Europe, even though she's got this very lofty position. Uh, there aren't that many women sitting in the meetings with her. Do you think that she likes her job, David? Yes. Um, she is a very, very smart person who actually came from France, the United States for high school for a year. 
And then she became the head of a major global law firm, the first woman to do that. I think she relishes it in part because uh, we didn't really talk about this much on the air, but she now has grandchildren and they live in Europe. And so she has a chance to be back in Europe. And so I think after living in the United States for about 10 years, she was ready to move back to Europe. David, we have headlines at this moment, and I would be honored to have your perspective of a final agreement of the Canadian Pacific Company with Kansas City Southern. And as you know, this has involved two Canadian giants, Canadian Pacific and Canadian National in a U.S. Uh, company as well, strategic, if you will, in railroads. Is this what is to come in this odd economy we're in? True, more mergers and combinations? I do think you're going to see more mergers because uh, people have fairly, uh, I would say, not inflated, but high-value stocks. And when you have high-value stocks, you can use that as a really good currency to make acquisitions. And I would say the antitrust authorities in the United States uh, they try to <clears throat> deal with some of these problems, but very few major acquisitions are being blocked right now. And in fact, there is no antitrust official in charge of the Justice Department because no one's been confirmed yet. And so it's going to take a while before I think you've got the antitrust authorities catching up to some of the, all the acquisitions that are being done. Maybe they're good acquisitions, mm -hmm. but I don't know whether we have the authorities yet really as focused on some of these. Is private capital, private equity, how has that changed transactions and combinations? It seems like a new player has added ever more money, more capital to the fire. Well, it's not only uh, private equity firms, but you now have uh, sovereign wealth funds, which are doing deals yes. directly. And you, and you also have a new phenomenon, uh, family offices. Family offices are doing deals directly as well. So it seems as if there's not a lack of capital, plenty of deal doing is going on. And until the Fed raises interest rates, and until the economy slows down, I don't think you're going to see any change in what we now see in terms of lots of deals being done, lots of investments at re relatively high valuations. All right. Before we let you go, David, you did ask Christine Lagarde about working from home and when they actually start to gather uh, as a group. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, what's the new September? We've been talking about when people will get back to the offices. For Carlyle Group, for the companies that you speak with, when is the new time to return? Well, at Carlisle, we have reopened our offices um, at, after Labor Day, but we're not saying that everybody has to come in because everybody has to deal with their own situation. Uh, we do think uh, in the United States that people will be coming back to work, but I don't think you're going to see anywhere in the United States people coming back to work five days a week at quite the pace they did before. Some firms will do four days a week, maybe three days a week in terms of asking their people to come in. Carlisle's policy is to have people come in a uh, number of days a week, but we're not telling them exactly what days they have to come in. Um, but each company has to feel it, its own way. I don't think we're going back to the way we used to work, which is five days a week, nine to five. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just don't think that's going to happen in the offices. No. David, again, congratulations on your new book, That Piece with Ken Burns, of course, out with Muhammad Ali right now. Mr. Rubenstein, the Carlisle Group co-founder, co-chairman, peer-to-peer conversations with Christine Lagarde. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.